All right, good morning. And we are going to be back in Revelation this week, and we are going to look at the first of Christ's messages uh, to the seven churches, the seven churches that were listed uh, in chapter 1, and the message to the church at Ephesus, with our emphasis today on recapturing our love for Christ, recapturing our love for Christ. So as you're turning in your Bibles to Revelation 2, I'll share a little snippet. This came from Dwight Moody, who's the founder of Moody Bible Institute, Moody Church in Chicago. He writes, show me a church where there is love, and I will show you a church that is a power in the community. In Chicago a few years ago, a little boy attended a Sunday school that I know of. When his parents moved to another part of the city, the little fellow still attended the same Sunday school, although it meant a long, tiresome walk each way. A friend asked him why he went so far and told him there were plenty of other good churches nearer to his home. They may be as good for others, but not for me, he replied. Why not? Because they love a fellow over there, he said. If only we could make the world believe that we loved them there, excuse me, if, if only we could make the world believe that we love them, there would be fewer empty churches and a smaller proportion of our population who never darken a church door. Let love replace duty in our church relations, and the world will soon be evangelized. I think uh, Dr. Moody had that correct. Uh, if only we could make the world believe that we loved them. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, a church that had lost their love for Christ, therefore they had lost their love for other people. That picture of that little boy's church is a church that loved Jesus. When believers, and thus a church, have the love of Christ, it makes a difference in people's lives, and thus the world. So again, we're going to look at a church that had this love, but then they left it, the church at Ephesus. We're going to see Christ command them to repent. Boy, I think I've heard that somewhere. Thankfully, Pastor Jim's already gone a long way in teaching this lesson. We're going to hear Christ's warning and his promise based on what choice they were going to make. And we're going to learn what it means to repent, and we're going to look at things that can lead to us losing our love for Christ, and we're going to see what a life filled with Christ's love should look like. So, Christ has a message for these seven churches. These seven churches that we read about last week uh, are real churches they, that existed in the first century, and these are real messages from Jesus specific to things that were going on in those churches. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have any relevance for us today. Uh, each of these messages will follow a general pattern. And this is essentially what these letters are going to say. Christ is going to tell them, this message is from me. I see what you're doing. I know the good things that you have done, but I also know the bad things that you've done. You need to change. If you don't change, this is what's going to happen. But if you do change, this is what I promise you. And that is essentially how the pattern of these seven letters will go, these seven messages to these churches. So as we talked about last week, each of these messages is addressed to the angel of that church. Anybody remember what that word angel means in the Greek? It's messenger. 
It's a messenger. Some people believe that he's referring to and that Christ has an actual angel that oversees those seven churches. That could be the case. Um, it's also likely that it could just mean a leader of those churches. That's kind of the, the way that I lean. Um, Christ has something specific to say to these seven real first century churches. But again, as I mentioned earlier, it is also applicable to us today in 2023. These commendations and condemnations for these seven churches are applicable to all churches. Every church that has ever existed can find themselves in some way in one of these seven churches, possibly in more than just one. It's an, these identify problems and good things going on in every church that's ever existed. John Volverd spoke to the relevance today and quite possible that more of one of these... I'm sorry, I skipped that. I'm trying to stick to my notes because we got to plow through to be here on time. Um, he speaks to the relevance of these messages today in this way. And he writes, Many of the evils and shortcomings which exist in the church today are a direct outgrowth of neglect of the solemn instruction given to these seven churches. These messages have tremendous relevance to us today, and I hope we're going to see that over the next several weeks. So, again, Christ commanded these five, seven churches, and they were to, I can't point in that to see it, so. Is it going to go that far? There we go. So there's Ephesus. That's where we are today. Then it goes to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And that is essentially the, the significance of the order of these seven churches is that's the mail route. That's how the mail would go. This thing doesn't want to cooperate with me. It would go up, come around, and then down. That's why they're in this order. So again, it's not just that only the church at Ephesus would read just the message to them. This entire book would have been what was going around that mail route. But there's a message specific to each of these seven churches. Only five of the seven churches, or f only two, I guess if you're going to say only, only two of them did not get condemned for something. Five of them, Jesus called out something they were doing wrong and told them that they needed to repent. So as we think about that idea of repentance, what does repentance mean? And as I mentioned earlier, this has already been taught for us today, so I'm not going to dig into this as deeply as I had planned on. Um, when we think about repentance, and, and as Pastor Jim had already explained, it can be easy to think, oh, repentance is something for someone to come to Christ, that it's a necessary step for salvation, and it most definitely is. But it's not just for someone to enter the kingdom. It's, as Pastor Jim just spent the morning preaching to us about, it is for us today as believers. Saints who sometimes sin still need to repent. Okay, and that is the message to this church, because what is a church made up of? Saint believers, right? People who believe. That's, that's what a church is. It's a group of believers. So, by definition, if he's telling this church that they need to repent, then obviously those are believers that need to repent. Um, it's necessary for believers and unbelievers. So what is repentance? The Greek word is metanaeo. Don't necessarily go by my Greek, but something like that. And Strong's Dictionary defines it as to think differently or to reconsider. And again, as has already been preached today, it is a change of mind. 
we agree with God that something is sin. We agree with him. God says it's sin, and I change my mind to agree with him. But it doesn't just end with our thinking. It, biblical repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. That's not my definition, but I think that's the best one I've ever heard. A change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. And again, that is the theme of these messages to these seven churches. Repent. Now, repentance isn't something that we conjure up ourselves. We can't repent absent God. All right, and that's clear in the Scriptures. In Acts eleven eighteen, Paul writes, or uh, Luke writes, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul writes, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Repentance is something that is a gift of God. We can't just decide to repent. God has to work that through us. So as we think about what repentance is, I think it's important for us to talk about what it isn't. What it isn't, and Pastor Jim hit on this a little bit this morning. Repentance isn't just feeling sorry or perhaps being sorry that I got caught. It goes much, much deeper than that. Who can think of an example in the Scriptures of someone who was sorry but didn't repent? I thought I heard it. Judas. Judas Iscariot is the greatest one that came to mind for me. We all know Judas's sin. At least I hope we all know Judas's sin of betraying Christ. We read about the aftermath of that in Matthew 27, 3 through 5. And I'll, uh, starting in verse 3, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. Now, what's interesting is, is that Greek word there for changed his mind is not metanoeo. It is a different Greek word that simply means sorrow, having sorrow in your mind. It's not a change of mind. So, and I think the King James actually says repent. And that's, you know, forgiveness to the KJV translators. That's a bad translation because Judas did not repent. How do we know for certain that Judas did not repent of his sin and turn to Christ? What does the Bible say about him? It would have been better for him to have never been born. That does not sound like someone going to heaven. Judas is not there because Judas did not repent. His guilt and sorrow were not repentance. We don't just feel sorry for ourselves and feel guilty and have repentance. It is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Fortunately, we see lots of great examples of biblical repentance in the Scriptures. Uh, none of them are any better than the story of the prodigal son. We see that in Luke 15. And you know the story. He demands his inheritance from his father, and he goes off and squanders it on sin. And he finds himself shortly thereafter doing what? Where, 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 how did he hit rock bottom? Where did he find himself? Eating pig food. Exactly. And in fact, even desiring to have the food that the pigs ate because he was hungry, he had blown everything. 
In that moment, in Luke 15, 17, it says he came to himself. He began to change his thinking. He came to his senses, he saw his sin, and he returned. Listen to what he says in verses 18 and 19. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He changed his mind, he changed his behavior, and he returned home. And the most beautiful part of this picture is the picture of his father, who is a representative of our father, who sits on the porch and says, come see me, I'm glad to have you back, right? So how it went? No. What did his father do? He ran to him, which was scandalous. Yeah, to have, to have run, he would have had to bared his legs, which was a no-no for men, um, and just humbled himself greatly. But that's what he did. His father humbled himself, ran to him, and that is a beautiful picture of what our Heavenly Father will do. Just like Jim just said, He promises His grace and His mercy when we will repent, when we will change our minds and change our behaviors, turning back to Him. That's the picture of the prodigal son. That is biblical repentance. Okay? So now that we understand what repentance is, let's dig in about what's going on at Ephesus. So Ephesus in the first century was a huge metropolis, about 250,000 people. What we see on the screen there is a model of the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana, depending on if you were Greek or Roman. And Ephesus had like a 20,000-seat theater, a 100,000-seat coliseum. It was on a couple of trade routes, so it was a bustling city. Unfortunately, what went on in the temple of Diana was horrific. It was the grossest of all gross immorality. Um, there were temple priests and priestesses um, who were essentially prostitutes as they worshipped her. Um, who is the, she was the sex goddess, for, for lack of a better word. Um, and that was what they did to worship there. Uh, it was a place where criminals were harbored. Um, just if you think about the capital city of sin... It would have been in Ephesus in the first century. That's the environment where this church existed, this church at Ephesus. And let's listen and hear what's going on with them. So I'm going to read, beginning in verse 1 here in Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we see there... Um, 
that Jesus is speaking to this church. How do we know this is Jesus? Well, in each one of these messages to the churches, he uses a description, for the most part, that is found in chapter 1 from John's vision. And the church at Ephesus, he's revealing himself, I am the one walking among the seven lampstands who holds these messengers, including the leader of your church, in my right hand. And that is, again, as we talked about last week, a picture of Jesus as head of his church. He knows this church. He can speak about what they're doing and what they're not doing because he knows them, because he is the head of the church. That Greek word for know um, is a knowledge because you can see and because you are, are there present. You see it, therefore you know it. Um, that is what Christ uh, is able to see. He commended them for several things. What did he commend them for? What good things were they doing? Their work, right? He said, I, I know your works, your deeds, the things that you're doing, your service. I see what you're doing. And in fact, he says, I know your works and your toil. That word for toil is working to the point of exhaustion. They were doing church programs to the point where, you know, it was wearing them out. And he's commending them for it. I know these things that you're doing. Um, he commended them for not bearing with evil men. So the, the evil that we talked about, you know, going on at the temple, they weren't putting up with that. They were testing false apostles. Men would come into the church to preach a false gospel and they would get rebuked, which is what we should be doing. That's one of the greatest duties of the church is to refute false teaching. Um, he lauds them for bearing up for his name and not growing weary. So there's an indication here that they were being persecuted, which no doubt they were considering the city they were living in. But they were bearing up under that. So, I mean, that all sounds pretty good, right? I mean, I bet that church probably thought they were doing great. Look at all the good things we're doing. It certainly would have looked good from the outside. But they are self-deceived, if that's what they're thinking. In spite of all that good, Jesus had something against them because they had, depending on what translation you have, they had either lost or left or abandoned their first love. Lost, and I'll, again, I'll throw an opinion out there. Lost is a bad translation because lost is an indication that it was accidental. This was not an accident. What happened was that they had abandoned their first love. And what is the first love? What do you think this first love is? The love that you had at first? Love for what? Yeah, their love for Christ. They had abandoned their love for Christ. Charles Ryrie says this was a deliberate and responsible action. And commentator David Guzik says the distinction between leaving and losing is important because leaving or abandoning is a deliberate act, even though it may not happen suddenly, which was likely the case with this church. It was probably a gradual drift over time of the loss of their love for Christ and the things that they were doing supposedly for him. Over time, this church simply stopped loving Christ. And that word for love there is agape, which we've talked about before. It is that unconditional love, um, a love that does not seek anything in return. 
The church at Ephesus was going about church life with no thought of Christ. Christ wasn't in there. They weren't thinking about him as they were doing what they were doing. There was no love in their action. It was all duty and no devotion. So what does Jesus tell them? Repent and return. Actually, he says, remember, repent and return. And boy, we've heard a sermon about remember sometime too. Anybody remember that? Come on. Thank you, Austin. Yeah. Not too distant past, we heard a a fantastic message on the importance of remembering. This church needed to remember. They needed to remember the love they had for Christ at first, when they first came to faith, when the church first started. This church, who do we know in the Scriptures would have taught or pastored at this church? Church at Ephesus. Timothy? Who trained Timothy? Paul. The Apostle Paul would have preached at this church for three years. Who else? The man writing this letter, John, the Apostle John. So this church would have had the teaching of Paul, Timothy, and John, which, you know, I don't know that Calvary's had some fantastic preachers, but I don't know that we can top... Paul, Timothy, and John. This church, at one point in their history, was loving Christ in their works. They needed to remember those days to repent, change their minds, which leads to a change in behavior, and return to the love they had at first. He rebukes their abandonment and commands them to repent. One commentator notes that this is an urgent appeal for instant change of attitude and conduct before it is too late. And the language indeed in the text is a urgent. There is urgency in the structure of the sentence. In other words, do it now. Don't wait. And that is always the message for repentance. Do it now. One commentator says, the longer we wait to repent, the more we have to repent of, and the less time we have to do it. And that's very true. The longer you take to repent, the more we have to repent of and the less time we have to do it. Repent and do the works you did at first. Return to me, Jesus is saying. You know, and it's important here that Jesus tells them to return to the work and not the feelings. He's not talking about a feeling. He is talking about actual work. Um, It's not an emotional experience. It is a heart condition. Jesus and and God, they have have always been after our hearts. You know, the church at Ephesus was operating more out of a legal obligation than a love relationship for Christ. Again, duty over devotion. God has always said that he desired mercy and not sacrifice. That's from the Old Testament. He was always after the hearts of the nation of Israel. He's after our heart. It's not just a New Testament concept. So why is abandoning our love for Christ a big deal? Why is that a big deal? I mean, as long as we're working, I mean, they were serving, probably feeding the poor, you know. So they were rebuking false teachers. They hated the Nicolaitans, and we're going to talk more about them in the next few weeks. And Jesus kind of even threw that in as an afterthought. 
why is abandoning our love for Christ a big deal? It's an unfor unforgivable sin, uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Um, yes, sir? If we don't love God, we cannot love others. Amen. That's true. Again, I'll quote John Walford. He says, Leaving your first love is a dangerous forerunner of spiritual apathy. Thus it has ever been in the history of the church. First, a cooling of spiritual love. Then the love of God replaced by a love of things for the world with resulting compromise and spiritual corruption. This is followed by a departure from the faith and a loss of effective spiritual testimony. The church at Ephesus had made the first step towards apostasy. Losing your love for Christ is that first step away. Sadly, that's the fate of a lot of the churches in America today. They left their first love a long time ago, and they have continued down that path that Walford talked about. The church at Ephesus had made the first step towards their death. They needed to stop and turn back, repent. You know, Jesus gives them, if you've got a, a, new, a new American Standard or a New King James, he says, or else, repent or else. Did anybody's dad ever give them an or else when they were growing up? Or I see some head shake. Or else meant serious business, right? At least it did in my family. And Jesus means serious business here. Or else. What's the or else? What did Jesus tell them they were going to get if they did not turn back? It's on the screen. I'm going to remove your lampstand. Remember when we talked about those seven lampstands, and he even tells us in chapter 1, verse 20, the seven lampstands represented what? I thought I heard it. Who had it? Come on. The seven churches, one of which was Ephesus. He's going to remove that lampstand. The church would go away. He was going to take their light. They were no longer going to exist in the community. And sadly, 2023, there's basically no church in Ephesus. Their lamp was removed many, many years ago. Christ removed that lampstand. So that brings us to the point of what does a life that has abandoned the love of Christ look like? And I'm going to suggest to you six things here. This is a life that has abandoned the love of Christ could be one or many of these things. The first of which is self-willed, self-willed. My will be done, not thy will be done. Is your life patterned by that? Obeying God, his commands are a restriction. How can I stretch those commands to fit my lifestyle? Or as it's put a lot of times today, just let me do me. My will be done. Self-willed. How about self-driven? What's in it for me? I'll give if I can gain some benefit from it. I will help if it helps me. What am I going to get out of it? You know, I've sadly seen it where people will serve and even join a church 
just to further their business or expand their network. Lots of good sales contacts in church. Self-driven. Self-promoting. I earn this. I deserve this. Everything I have is a result of my hard work. What I have done. You know, you should do that for me because I deserve it. I want to serve because I want to be recognized. Self-promoting. How about self-entitled? You offended me. I was wronged. I want vengeance. How dare you wrong me? No way I can forgive what they did to me. Are you easily offended and slow to forgive? Self-entitled. How about self-sufficient? I got this. I don't need any help. I don't need to pray about that. I can handle it myself. I would be ashamed to pray about this, or I'd be ashamed to ask someone to help me with this. Self-sufficient. Lastly, self-focused. I'd rather never share the gospel than go out of my comfort zone. That would just be too awkward a conversation to have. I wouldn't know what to say. It would make me uncomfortable. I'm afraid. How about Jonah? Jonah hated the Assyrians so much that he was going to get on a boat and get as far away from them as he could get. And then ultimately, I would rather die than go share the gospel with these Assyrians that I hate. That was Jonah's attitude. Self-focused. All of those are examples of a life that has abandoned the love of Christ. Notice the similarity there. What's the commonality? Self. Self. Very good. Yeah. When we abandon the love of Christ, it is typically because we have set ourselves up as God and we have pursuing the idols of our heart, ourself. J. Vernon McGee says, When your church life becomes a burden, there's something wrong with your relationship with Christ. And when you get that straightened out, other things will straighten out also. And John Phillips adds, If service for God is not born of a devoted passion for the Lord Jesus, it is worthless. It is worthless. If our service to the Lord, if the things that we do supposedly for Him are driven by these things, it is worthless. When we love ourselves more than we love Christ, the result is ineffective service for Him. It is condemned by Christ. And He's ordering them to repent and ordering us to repent, if that is us. But what about a life that is consumed by and saturated with the love of Christ? What might that look like? It might look like this. One commentator notes that to love Jesus is to willfully act in such a way that our devotion to Him is proved through our actions toward Him and our obedience of Him. Obedience is a key indicator of our love for Christ. He said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Obey my commandments. His commands are not burdensome, to those that love him. How about generosity? How can I contribute? 
You know, when we love Jesus, we can freely give without concern to what we might be given away. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7 puts it this way. Now this I say, he who, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When we give out of our love for Christ, we will give generously without complaining, without hesitation. In fact, we may have to have people stop us from giving, right? How about a heart of thankfulness? Thankfulness. We understand that everything we have is because God has given it to us, including the air that we're breathing right now, um, that we're involuntarily taking in and out. A gift from God. Ephesians 5.20 says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks when? Shout it out. Always. For what? Everything. Giving thanks always and for everything. That is a thankful heart. That's a heart that loves Jesus. Here's a tough one. How about forgiveness? You are never more like Jesus than when you are forgiving someone. Someone who forgives is someone who loves Jesus. You recognize that there is nothing that anyone has ever done to you that Jesus hasn't already forgiven you of in greater degree. I would have to disagree with the Apostle Paul because I am the greatest sinner that I know. Not Paul. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We should recognize how much we have been forgiven for, and as a result of that, we should be willing and ready to forgive anyone that hurts or wrongs us. You are never more like Christ than when you are forgiving someone. How about dependence? Do we recognize that we can do no good thing apart from Christ? In John 15, he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We can do nothing apart from Christ that's good. We are 100% dependent upon him to do anything worthwhile for him. What's a key indicator of how dependent on the Lord we are? I've talked about this before, if anybody remembers. What's one quick way we can identify if we're living a life dependent on Christ? Prayer. Say it loud. Prayer. prayer. Our prayer life. If you never pray, you are saying, God, I don't need you. If you have things that you don't pray about, God, I don't need you in these things, in these areas of my life. Our prayer life is a key indicator of whether we're depending upon the Lord. Dependence, a life of dependence is a life that is saturated with the love of Christ. And then finally, evangelism. 
Are we compelled to share the gospel? Do we see others as Christ sees them, as sheep without a shepherd? He had compassion on them. You know, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, it's all about sharing the gospel, that we are ambassadors for Christ. And within that, I think it's maybe in verse 12 or 13, he says, I'm compelled by love. It is the, Paul's love of Jesus that compels him to be an ambassador for Christ. When we are in love with Christ and when our lives are saturated by the love of Christ, we won't be able to help evangelizing. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I think back um, on a Sunday night last year, one of our global partners, uh, Kurt Zerberg, who's now in, I think, Zealand, but spent many, many years in Ukraine, um, and his simple message was, in terms of evangelism and missions, is developing a lifestyle of loving people. That is all it is. When you begin to have it in your heart to love the people that you meet and see and rub shoulders with and encounter in the world, have the love for them that Christ has for us, that Christ has for them, that's when we get out of our comfort zone, which the more each day goes by, I detest that word. Um, there's no comfort zone in the life of a Christian. There shouldn't be. All of those things put together, I could simply say it this way. When we have the love of Christ flowing in us and through us, we get to serve Christ. We get to work for Christ. It's not that we have to. We get to. That's the difference. That helps me and my simple mind wrap my head around it. A heart that gets to do things is Christ-focused. A heart that has to do things is self-focused. Where's your heart today? So what was going to happen in Ephesus? Jesus begins, uh, and I think it's in verse 5, or maybe verse 6, or maybe verse 7. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That will be a refrain that we hear repeated in each message to each of these churches. He who has an ear. And what's interesting is, is while this is a message to the churches, this he who has an ear, let him hear, is an individual address. So now Jesus had been speaking corporately to this church. Now he is speaking individually to the members of this churches, speaking individually to us. If anyone is hearing this, hear this. Hear what I have to say to this church. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Listen up, if you want to put it in Russ's vernacular. Return to your love for me, to the love that you had at first, and you will eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, where in the Bible might we have read about this tree of life that may or may not be an actual picture of it? Just, that's a joke. If it looks like that, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. Um, Genesis. And where, what do we read about the tree of life in Genesis? 
Anybody? I'm going to force you to talk. Don't you know that by now? This is not the first time me teaching here. Forbidden. 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 They, in fact, basically God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden so that they would not eat of the tree of life. And in fact, he is guarding it with angels, cherubim, with swords to keep anyone from going and eating because God did not want Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life in their sinful state. But it doesn't remain that way for us. If we go all the way to the end, we're going to reveal how this ends today. Sorry, I'm going to blow it for you. In Revelation 22, in verse 2, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and forbidden from eating of the tree of life. But in eternity, after Revelation 22 is after God has established the new heaven and the new earth, evil has been done away with. There's no more tears. All of those promises that we read about. We will be able to partake of the tree of life. We will get to eat of that tree, the fruit of that tree. He's giving them a picture of of eternal life. Return to your love for me, and you will live in paradise with me forever. So what does that mean for us today? So we've got a little bit of time, and why don't we just, we'll talk about this collectively. If we have abandoned our first love, how do we get it back? How do we get it back? What do we need to do? Repent. Repent. We need to change our mind that leads us to a change in behavior. Remember, repent, and return. The prodigal son remembered the love of his father. He remembered how good he had it back home. He changed his mind that going out and, and, and living in the world was going to be the way to a contented life. He repented, he returned, and was received home. Verse 5 in Revelation 2, remember is in the present imperative. And I know this only because I read it, not because I know it. But that is, a, again, that idea of continually remembering. We need to be constantly and continually remembering in order to repent. Continually remember, think about, and reflect on the love for Christ we had at first. That fervent love when, when we first get saved and it's exciting and new. And that should spur us to action. So let's ask ourselves these questions. Is there an area of your life that is off limits to God where you refuse to obey? And some of these may be better served for you to reflect on personally. But, you know, going back to Pastor Jim's message this morning, you know, and the scriptures tell us, confess our sins to each other. Now, that doesn't mean you need to do it out here in front corporately in this big group. But who do you have in your life 
that you could sit down with over coffee and say, man, I need to share with you something that's going on in my life. Confess your sins to one another. We all need that friend. I'll, I'll we'll, uh, reference Anthony, and your dad said something in a lesson years ago that I will never forget. And he speaks about Proverbs 17, 17, which is a friend loves at all time and a brother is born for adversity. Every one of us needs a Proverbs 17, 17 friend in our lives. Someone that we can go to and confess our sins. Someone that will, with grace and compassion, listen, bring us back to the Word of God, and walk with us as we repent. Is there sin in your life that you need to repent of? Is there an area of your life that is off limits to God? What about are you a giver or a taker? Are you a cheerful giver of your time and resources? Or can nobody ever get you to do anything to help? And, you know, would you rather get on a boat than actually give some of your income to the church or to a ministry? Are you a giver or a taker? Can you give cheerfully? Or, I just, I have this picture, stupid, you probably, most of you probably never even heard of the movie Ghost, but there's a scene in the movie Ghost and one of the characters is having to give a large sum of money back to someone and she, she doesn't want to, they're having to pry the check out of her hands. Is that how you give to the church? Is that how you give to ministry? Or do we have open hands? And it's not just money. God has given us spiritual gifts and talents. Are we using them in the church? Are we generously giving of our time? You know, do you know, uh, you know, in, in, for more mature believers, are you generously investing in less mature believers? Walking beside someone, being that Proverbs 17, 17 friend for somebody? Are we givers or are we takers? How about an attitude of gratitude? Are we thankful in all things? for all things, all the time? Or do we, eh, I kind of deserve that. I mean, I did all the work. I don't need to thank anybody for that. You know, the Bible tells us that it's God who gives us the ability to earn an income. We weren't just born with that. It was a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. That's James 1. We don't have anything that didn't come from God. It's all from Him. Are we thankful? This one can be ouchy. Are you slow or quick to forgive? Is it easy to offend you or is it difficult? I taught through the Beatitudes uh, several years ago and came up with the phrase for uh, being meek or humble or gentle as unoffendable. Are you unoffendable? Or are you quick to be offended? And one key indicator there is, do we, rec do we really, truly recognize how much we have been forgiven 
and how much God continues to forgive us for on a daily basis. You know, as Brother Jim just talked about, our daily confession of sins that needs to be a practice. You know, I like that First John 1, 9 on the headboard. You know, before I put my head on the pillow, Lord, what have I not confessed of the many things that I did today that were sins against you? Are we easily offended? Are we slow or quick to forgive? And then even more, ouchy. how about that prayer life? Does our prayer life demonstrate dependence or independence? You trying to work it out in your own strength or are you crying out to God to help you with something you're struggling with? And it doesn't just have to be something you're struggling with. It should be before, I think it may have been John Newton, uh, somebody that lived a long time ago, very wise saying that, on the, and, and paraphrased, on the days that I'm most busy are the days when I need to spend double time in prayer. It's not just that I'm too busy to pray. It's if I know, if I think I'm too busy to pray, that means I need to pray even more that day. Is that how our lives are going, our prayer lives? Does that demonstrate that? Or do we think we've got it all under control? And, and please, uh, now would be a good time for me to pause and say, um, I'm not speaking as one who's checking all these boxes and I'm in good shape. So, um, you know, there's, each one of these is a uh, copper nail in me. And then lastly, and maybe this is the biggest and sharpest copper nail, are you compelled to share Christ with others? Others. Or are you repelled to share Christ with others like Jonah? Well, I could share it with some people, but there's no way I'm sharing it with him. Or there's no way I'm sharing it with that group of people. I'm going to get on the boat, and I'm going to the complete opposite direction. When we as believers and collectively the church have the love of Christ in us, we can change the world through Christ. Christ can change the world through us. This would be a better way to say that. When we are saturated by the love of Christ, if we have left that love, we need to remember and repent and return. And I have finished early, which has never happened in the history of any lesson that I have ever taught. So are there any questions or comments, thoughts? What are some challenges? Or anybody struggled with any of these things or um, have something encouraging to share? We got a couple of minutes. I can stand here for four more minutes. Yeah, that's good. It's kind of like the guy that stole the copper nails, right? If, if you're missing the mark in the first five, 
you're going to have a hard time doing number six, right? Because somebody's going to have a hard time believing that Christ is worth hearing about if they see these other things in you or don't see these things in you, as it were. Yeah, and that's an important distinction. The sin, the, the sin is the thought. It's not just the act. The thought that the Assyrians are, are evil people, there's the sin. The fact that I won't go share the gospel like God told me to, speaking of Jonah, is just an outcropping of his sinful thinking. Right? And the same is true. James talks about that too, that sin it gives birth, you know, in a thought that then leads us down that path. So it's, yeah, there are actions that we need to repent of, but the sins that we need to begin, we, the beginning of the repentance of sin, it begins in the head. It begins with that thought. What else? Is my blubbering embarrassing you? <laughs> no. <clears throat> it's embarrassing me. One more minute before I will release you. Any other questions? So I probably have no chance of finishing early next week, so please come because we're going to try to get through three churches next week. We're going to try to hit Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum, and we're going to see... Two of them are going to hear something similar to what the church at Ephesus. But then Smyrna, we're going to see, is one of the two churches uh, where God had nothing but commendation for them. He had no condemnation. You know, and it's not a bad thing to think about, you know, um, do we see Calvary? Collectively, corporately, Calvary. Do we see any of this here? You know, and if that's true... Where does that begin to change? Where does that repentance begin? If Calvary needs to repent? Yeah, you and me. That's where it begins. That's where the change starts. We are a part corporately of the church, but the church can't repent if the believers in it are not. It would begin with us. So I'll close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Uh, for the messages that we've heard today.
for the truth of your word. Lord, the truth that, um, Lord, it's, it's wrong to see ourselves as just sinners saved by grace when we are, in fact, uh, saints who sometimes sin. Uh, Lord, just a picture of the abundant and generous mercy and grace that you offer us uh, through the death of your Son. Lord, I pray that uh, each of us would take the things that we've heard today, Lord, that we would examine ourselves in the light of the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, if there are areas in our lives, uh, Lord, where we need to repent, Father, I pray that you would give that to us, uh, that you would grant us that repentance necessary, Lord, that we would seek to change our minds, change our behaviors, Lord, agree with you about our sin, and run to you knowing that you're not just there to receive us, Lord, but that you will run to meet us uh, with open arms, uh, Lord, just out of the abundance of the love that you have for us. Lord, help us to receive that love that you have for us, and Lord, then demonstrate uh, in return our love for you through how we love other people. And we just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.